everyone, and welcome to the Startups in the Studio podcast. Today's interview is with Jim Jamison, the president and co-founder of Evidence Care, which is a healthcare technology startup based here in Nashville, Tennessee. Jim has an amazing story. It started with an adverse upbringing and some time in the Marine Corps, and eventually through the Pentagon, a job at the Pentagon, and uh, finding his way to Nashville, where he ended up working in the healthcare industry. It was in Nashville where he met his co-founder, Brian, through his stepfather, who was an angel investor in Brian's uh, company, which at the time was called Doctor's Decisions, and of course later became uh, renamed to Evidence Care. They went on to raise about $12 million from over 100 investors as the company grew. Stay tuned for Jim's incredible story and for some great takeaways on how to raise money from a very large number of individual investors, as well as some tips on preparing how to raise from institutional investors and what it takes to get investment in either one of these scenarios. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Startups in the Studio podcast. I am in the studio, our high-tech studio here in Nashville, Tennessee, with Jim Jamison, the president and co-founder of Evidence Care. They went through a, a long fundraising process, multiple rounds, raising from uh, over 100 investors. And I think that's a much more accurate sample of how, example of how uh, entrepreneurs outside the coast are having to raise money these days. Um, and I'm very excited to have him in the studio. Welcome, Jim. And we're, we're looking forward to hearing your story today. Thank you, man. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Uh, to get started, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background, how you grew up. Did you grow up with an entrepreneurial bug, or is this something that, that came in later in your life, an interest in entrepreneurship? Um, yeah, I don't think being an entrepreneur was even in the realm of possibilities for me. It wasn't even something I even comprehended as a kid growing up. We grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, mom's a nurse, um, but she didn't become a nurse until years later. Neither one of my parents graduated high school. My dad went to Vietnam, got shot a couple of times, came back and became a plumber. I have a sister. She's five years older, legally blind. When I turned five years old, she was nine, nine and a half. My parents went bankrupt. My mom wasn't working. She was taking care of trying to do that. My family business and raise us. Moved to South Florida. My aunt had an extra home in Pompano Beach, Florida, which... Uh, if you know the area back then, I was you know, one of two white kids in my whole school growing up. So it's just a challenging environment for a sister being legally blind. You're always kind of defending her. And then my mom had gone to night school to become a nurse, and she started doing well there. Uh, my dad got a job with the uh, Broward County School Systems in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and he ended up retiring from there a couple of years ago. He was there 30 years and then my mom, years gone by, and they end up getting divorced. I was going to go to college. Um, I did go to college for a year. Then I went to the Marine Corps. Along the way, my mom took off and went to Humana, then kind of the corporate world of healthcare. Never went to uh, undergrad and got herself grandfathered into a master's program at University of Miami. So she has a dual MBA and MHA with zero high school diploma and zero undergrad degree. And she actually lives here in Nashville, Tennessee now, but... So no, it just wasn't, you know, starting your own company and being an entrepreneur, just basically having a job to pay the bills was really the only thing, you know, you, you grew up in the mentality of the world. I grew up in blue collar Pittsburgh and, and South Florida. So it wasn't, wasn't on my radar. So tell me a little bit more about the uh, veteran background. You know, what, what kind of skills did you learn uh, through going through the Marine Corps that you think that you apply now as an entrepreneur? And maybe in that, in that tough, uh, 
you know, uh, environment that you grew up in, um, were there lessons that you learned along the way that you think you apply to your entrepreneurship now? Yeah, you know, military wasn't really something I was going to do either. I always wanted to play football growing up in college. I, I played just well enough to get looked at by some D2 schools, and I went to look at some of them. But right when I was graduating high school, my parents had been on and off for years. There was a lot of, um, a lot of alcoholism and abuse in my family growing up. And the second I, basically right when I graduated high school, my parents ended up separating for good. And neither one of them had the money for me to go out of state. So I decided to stay in, uh, in state for college for my first year. Um, and halfway through that first year, I just started partying and doing what every other college kid does their freshman year and make some really bad decisions. And I just came home one night at three o'clock in the morning from a party in Gainesville, Florida. I looked myself in the mirror and just realized, I don't know where the hell my life is headed. And I literally, that was two weeks before Christmas break. And uh, the, the Marine recruiter who was bugging the heck out of me all through high school, I called in the next day and I, I signed up and I left for, uh, I left school, didn't even finish my, my exams. And I, I was in uh, Paris Island boot camp um, Christmas Eve that year and freaked my family out because my dad got shot, hit by a hand grenade. And my grandfather, my other grandfather was wounded in uh, World War II. And just, it, we were right in the middle of um, the first Gulf and it was just a bad time to go through to Marine Corps boot camp. So it was just something I had to do for myself. I mean, I, I, I think you asked me what it got for me. I mean, there's two things that I carry with me. One is troop welfare. That's always taking care of your people. And I believe um, there's a leader um, in Nashville that people are fairly well known, a guy named Jim Lackey, who's an entrepreneur in town that myself and some of my colleagues work for that always motto is hire people and get, get the hell out of their way. You know, my belief, I apply that for my military leadership example is we call it troop welfare. Make sure people have what they need to be successful to, to accomplish the mission and then let them do what they do. And the other one is leadership. I mean, you, you can't, get out of the military. I don't care what branch you're in or how long you've been in for. You can't go through two years, four years, or 25 or 30 years without truly understanding what it means to be a leader. Um, there are leaders, there are managers. Um, everyone who is a leader understands there's a significant difference between the two. But you know, having gone through, whether it's a training exercise, you're teaching somebody how to throw a live hand grenade, or simply teaching them how to you know, roll on, roll off of a, a C-130 or something like that. I mean, there's a leadership trait to every single thing you do. And I didn't really realize how much that applies to life until probably the last four or five years of running this company with my colleagues and how important that is to, to make sure people have what they need to do their job. Um, at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing I got out of being a Marine is you just, you figure it out. Whatever the answer is, what the question is, what the challenge is, you find a way to, to solve it. So where did you head after the Marine Corps? What was the next step and uh, what, what were the steps that led into this entrepreneurial endeavor for you? It's a long story. I'll try to be, sum it up a little bit for you. But when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was actually, uh, I proposed to a girl, moved to Connecticut. Um, that went south. So I moved back to South Florida. Right when I moved down there, I met a girl, ended up getting engaged, got married. Um, we moved back to D.C., I got a job working in the Pentagon as a defense contractor, had a top secret background um, right around the second Gulf was kicking off. So I was doing um, some top secret operations for the Army G4, which is logistics, doing a lot of IT consulting. So I did that for a while. That marriage didn't work out. Tried saving it, moved to Florida, just got worse. So I ended up moving to Nashville 
in June of 13. And my mother had remarried my stepfather just a few years before that. He's a physician. Uh, moved here Tuesday of June 2006. Met my wife that Saturday. We've been together ever since then, 13 years now. I did some international business when I first moved here. One of my original, the lady that hired me first, she's started a couple companies and now she's doing her own thing in Nashville as well right now. And I started getting into healthcare pretty soon thereafter. Jumped in a revenue cycle for eight or 10 years. And that's when I started working for that gentleman, Jim Lackey, and then another colleague of mine, Deb, Deb Miller, who works with us now, and our first CTO, Howard Bright from Passport. And started putting the band together when I met that's a currently evidence care now, but I met Brian Fengler, my business partner, through my stepfather. Um, so Brian is, I don't know if he knows it, but he's probably an entrepreneur at heart. He just doesn't, you know, this is his first go around. I mean, he started, he's an ER physician. He's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Opened up a chain of urgent care clinics here in Nashville, which probably kicked off that entrepreneur spirit for him. And then had this idea of, of evidence care when treating a patient as a resident. And then he had a similar scenario when he was here at St. Thomas in Nashville, we're about this back then, where a clinical scenario, but it really dawned on him that there's gotta be a better way to solve this problem. I mean, the technology's there, the content's there. So he embarked on trying to get an idea out there and raising it, but um, my stepfather, who who's a physician himself, went to UCLA, Harvard, raised in Europe, lived in Spain and Paris, um, a savant like Brian is, he met Brian through Brian trying to raise some money in Nashville. And the second my stop, stepfather met Brian, he wrote a check for, I think it was like 25 grand or something and said, I love this idea. And my stepfather is one of those Socratic method of teaching people. And it's, you know, annoying as hell when you have a question because he makes you, you know, go find the damn answer yourself. But, you know, you listen to him when he believes in something. Um, so when he asked me to meet Brian, I said, all right, if you, you care this much about it, I got to, I'd love to meet him. But before I met Brian, my stepfather, my mom and I, my wife, we travel around the world quite a bit. I don't have children, so it's pretty easy. And we were on a train going through, it was through Italy, Lake Como, Switzerland and France. And he gave me this PowerPoint deck. that was probably the, the, the worst deck I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, it was God awful. And I it took a, a week into it. I'm like, I don't even know what the hell you're trying to say here. Then the second week of that trip, I started digging into the research on the train rides when I had a couple hours here and there. And I, I started realizing, like, how is this problem not solved? Like, this is a simple problem to solve. And oftentimes, those are the problems that don't get solved because they're often overlooked. Um, so I believed in a mission. And I did some research and looked at the, comp quote, competition in the market and realized, yeah, there's really no one doing this. So we got back. And a week later, we had dinner and wine at my mom's house with, um, with Brian and... I said, I can help you guys raise some money. And I was traveling about 250,000 miles a year in a revenue cycle, and we were doing well. I doubled probably the last two companies we were at, tripled my very last one, they sold. And I started helping Brian and my stepfather nights and weekends. We, I started getting uh, my colleagues together, putting the band together, raising capital, and that kind of started the train rolling down the hill. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about um, the company, the business model, maybe just a few minutes on yeah. on what, what the company does, Evidence Care? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, evidence Care is, is unfortunately, we're, we're bucketed in uh, a vertical called clinical decision support. And there's a lot of companies, when you look that term up on the internet, you get probably 15, 20 companies that, quote, do decision support. 
or more of a workflow solution for the for the clinician, whether it be a nurse or a doctor. Uh, when a provider has a clinical question, statistics show and hospitals prove that less than 20% of patients in the U.S. alone that receive care today are getting evidence-based medicine. Um, and that's because the content literature is tripling literally every single year with the number of clinical trials and studies and medical societies and, and hospitals like Vanderbilt and Hopkins and Intermount doing their own what are called care pathways or protocols and how they think patients should be treated with a condition. The challenge with those protocols is nine and a half times out of 10, they're delivered in a, a PDF form via an email or an intranet site in a hospital system. So when a physician or nurse has a clinical question about a specific patient they're treating, they end up spending 20, 30 minutes trying to skim through either 15 to 150 page uh, basically protocol or a visio diagram of what do I do when I have to treat this patient with this specific condition. So what evidence care does at the highest level is we have taken those protocol. We built a SaaS platform, software as a service platform that allows us to take content from any source, whether it's a medical society, whether it's Vanderbilt or academic facility, um, whether it's a partner, one of our perceived competitors out there that have online content, we could take content from any source and build it inside the electronic medical record. So when the clinician is using, uh, when they have a clinical question, they can launch evidence care. Um, we do a single sign-on where within their workflow, we help them assess, risk stratify, and treat specifically the patient that's in front of them at that point of care, at the bedside, taking into consideration their specific vital signs and labs and demographic information. And then once we have that in a 30 to 45 second time frame, we help take that clinical speak, if you will, and put it into plain English. So the, uh, the nurse or the doctor and the patient have a, a good understanding of exactly what's going on with that patient or with their family, if they're scared, if they're going to have a bad outcome, or if they're complaining of chest pain, or if one of their kids got hit in a soccer field and they want a CT scan or something, we can help them have a better understanding of why the patient's going to be okay or why they have to be admitted to the hospital. And then from a user perspective, we push a button and all that documentation goes back to the medical record. So in healthcare today, it doesn't really matter what, what the physician does to the patient. It's what they um, document they do to the patient. Otherwise, the hospital's not getting paid. Um, so as a user traverses one of our protocols, we capture everything they're doing and we send that documentation back to the medical record. So the hospital has a much better chance of not only getting paid, but reducing their risk should there be a bad outcome. Um, it doesn't mean the doctor made a bad decision. It just means that patient was unfortunately in that two, three or 4% that did have a bad outcome in that scenario. So was the idea where you are today, was that the original idea for the business? Was that the idea that got the $25,000 initial uh, seed check? Um, no. I, I mean, I say no. It, it's, it's evolved quite a bit. We've got a few audibles along the way. I mean, when, when I met Brian, my stepfather wrote that check. It was, uh, it was in a company called Doctor Decisions, um, which implied, you know, we're only doing this for doctors. It was emergency medicine back then, which implies we're only doing it for emergency medicine. Um, our platform has evolved quite a bit, but I think what's funny is uh, Brian, $25,000 went towards, um, when I first met Brian, when he was trying to do this on his own, he was trying to raise $600,000 and give away a third of the company. And he thought we could build a company off of that. 
you know, looking back to the 15 or some million dollars we've raised so far where we are as a company, it wasn't even close to what we needed to do. What we had to do to accomplish the mission. But um, in theory, you know, Brian's vision was to build a tool that helped his peers get a better, quicker, faster answer to treat their patient um, at the point of care. So I think if you stick to the grain, holy girl of what we are, uh, the core of what evidence care is, I think, yeah, that, that still is the genesis of what we, what we are. So the vision's always been the same. The problem that you were solving's always been the same. Maybe just the way that you solved it kind of iterated over time. Yeah, we've evolved. We've, we've evolved to other specialties. We've evolved to other uh, users. And by users, I mean um, nurses, nurse practitioners, um, other areas like orthopedics and gastroenterology and, and urgent care settings outside of emergency medicine. Uh, we've evolved from just a web-based platform that we thought we were going to only do advertising revenue to baking this inside of the electronic medical records of the hospital to where we can really grow and scale it. Yeah. So let's talk about the fundraising. The first check was the $25,000. Was that it? Or was Brian able to raise a little bit more money before you came in? Um, and then what was the, I guess, the early fundraising process? Um, did you guys have a plan in place? Did you say, like, here's how we're going to raise money throughout the next five years? Or was it just like, here's our idea. We've got a, a great, we got some traction. We've got a great idea. Let's just go figure out where we can get some money to build this thing. Yeah, I think uh, we probably put more thought into the business than we did the fundraising. Some people may do it backwards, but, and I was, again, I had, I was working full-time traveling well over, call it $220,000, a year in my last, my other job. Brian was working in the ER nights, um, and he was working every other weekend in the urgent care with his business partners down in Brentwood. So we were trying to, in our meetings, were either at my kitchen table or in his urgent care office between seeing patients or um, at Starbucks. I mean, that's where we're trying to figure it out. And Brian, the first money was really Brian's home money. I think he threw in a hundred grand or something out of his pocket. His stepfather, I mean, his dad threw in, I forget, twenty-five or fifty thousand. But my stepfather was the first outside of him basically money and because he threw it in i threw in i don't know like 15 grand or something back in an idea when it was just founder money and i then went and got a couple of my colleagues that miller howard bright and a few others and so okay we need to change this deck get a better vision change the name and we had a uh, a seed round at um marables and brentwood and we were in the back room and I think to be exact, we raised it was like 167 or 187,000 seed round that night. Um, and it was basically because people either knew me or knew Brian. A lot of the ER doctors came in. They loved the vision for it. It was an idea in a napkin. And people that knew me came to the room, knew my background, knew I could grow a company. They threw in some cash. But it was still like we, were, we had that money. And I'm like, I just, I was helping Brian. I, I had no intentions of ever really taken on full-time at this company. I was trying to help a friend and my stepfather build, raise money to build the company. We still had the old company name and the whole thing, but, and it was probably shortly after that, that we said, okay, well now we've got some developers building the product. And my last company, we had tripled in about two and a half years, eh, three and a half years. And I was in Vegas for a conference and I went out for a 10 mile run and I got back. My boss called, called and said, we sold. And I'm like, all right. And he knew I was raising money on the side. He knew I was trying to help my friend. And I said, all right, well, I quit. It's my time. He's like, what do you mean you quit? I need you to transition. I said, well, I'll transition for you, but I'm out. Like, I just made you a lot of money. I'm going to do this myself now. And then I called Brian and told him, 
and then I called my wife after all that and told her, which which went over pretty well. Um, and then I would say within a month, Brian put a quote sabbatical in the ER to take a year off. That's it's been three years since he's done that. And then shortly thereafter, he sold his shares in the urgent care clinic. Um, we both kind of went all in from there. In those early days and the early pitches to these uh, angels, did you ever go to pitch what I what I would call professional investors like angel groups or venture capitalists, or were, was it more like friends, family, and and some people in the industry who who knew you guys by reputation or understood the product, like the physicians, for example? Yes, yes, and yes. I mean, we made some bad decisions early on. I think the biggest mistake we made was not truly doing research and knowing what what or how the thesis is behind the VC's investment, um, not knowing what an LP is. And you start going to a lot of the big names that everyone here in Nashville knows, and we built great relationships with all of them. I stay in touch with every one of them now. But as much as they may love you as a person or as a, as a, as a business owner or founder, they can't invest in you because you don't meet certain criteria and you just, but every one of them wants to meet with you because if you do make it to a point, they want to be the first one to throw, you know, five or 10 million at you. And so it's like, you don't realize you're wasting your time until you realize you're wasting your time until it's too late. And then we talk to them like, Oh, you should talk to this guy. Cause they're in your wheelhouse. You talk to them like, Oh, you're a little too early. You should talk to this guy. And you know, you should talk to this hospital because their innovations group is doing what you do. And then you got every accelerator and incubator in the company country trying to get you to, go fly out to California and Texas for four months to be part of their program, um, which we did one of those. And fortunately for us, it was fruitful, but yeah, that w- so then we were very blessed. There's a group in town called new Cura partners, uh, N U E C U R A. Um, the founder is a, a physician and we went to pitch one night friend got us in there and the founder believed in Brian. He believed in the clinical vision. He knew the challenges, it's all healthcare focused. So a lot of the people in the room got it right away. We didn't get invested after that one. It was just, we didn't get it. So about four months later, we had a prototype and we had a first big partner with the medical society and we decided to give it another run. So we went back and they wrote, I think it was a $315,000 check. And through the course of time, we have some big, big names in Nashville that are investors there. And I, I went and said, hey guys, I'm now a member. I'm, I'm joining the group. I made some investments there myself. I asked probably half a dozen of them out to lunch or coffee or a drink and say, what do you think of when you invest? How do you invest? What does it even mean to be an angel investor? I, I asked for like, what books are you reading? So I, I read five books. I learned the hard way how to do this because I feel like if I'm sitting on the other side of the fence, I'm asking for investors. I want to know what they're going through, uh, what questions they're asking, what are they thinking about? how Because anyone can tell you how to put a deck together. But no one can tell you what's in somebody's mind when they're writing you a personal fifty or hundred thousand dollar check. So I spent a lot of time doing that. Unfortunately, our um, Nikira has invested three times for over a million dollars in us, and they've been a great partner for us. They've got a board seat with us. The the majority of that close to hundred number you mentioned was came through our two convertible note. We did a convertible A, convertible B, and then a Series A combined so far. Oh. The rest of them are pretty much friends and family ER docs that refer to other ER doctors. A couple of my buddies from the Marine Corps who have no idea what I'm doing as a mm-hmm. business. They just know that I'm a Marine and I'm a friend and they gave me some money. And my wife's grandmother, who doesn't have a lot of money, wrote us a $100,000 check. I'm like, so you get a lot of pressure, which there's not a bar I can go to in Nashville and not see an investor. So I, <laughs> I have to succeed. 
but it was a lot, it was a lot of work. It's a lot of meetings, a lot of coffees, a lot of lunches, a lot of dinners, a couple of out of state, a lot of out of state investors, angels. Um, but yeah, that was tough. So let's rewind a little bit, going back to when you were really early and you were talking to some of those VCs and those professional investors who were telling you that you were too early. A lot of entrepreneurs go into those conversations and come back and say, yeah, I talked to this VC and they told me how great I was. And they, and they think like, yeah, they're, they're going to write a check and they get their hopes up. But the reality is when they're that early, uh, it's not necessarily going to be the case. So it sounds like at that point, you did you even have a prototype built at that point or you were still... When they were telling you too early, did you were you out in the market yet? Um, a little of both. I mean, we, we were out in the market for with, with an idea, but I, I'm not going to say the name, even though I really want to. But there's there was a VC, there's a VC in town that's pretty well known, and we they liked us a lot. They followed us for a while, and I had some very um, senior executives at one of the biggest healthcare systems in the country here in town. Um, we had a little small investor dinner because this, this VC said that if you get one or two of these people to invest, we will we'll invest as well. We'll lead your A round or your uh, B round, whatever it was for a convertible note. So they committed to uh, $200,000. No, I'm sorry, $500,000 if these other two people invested. And I get the dinner together and it was expensive for a startup with no money. And everyone's at dinner. We had the packets, the handout, performance. We did the whole thing. And the, the VC said, all right, I'm in. And everyone else said they're in. And Brian and I are in the parking lot, shaking hands. We're so happy. We spent like fifteen hundred bucks on dinner, and I'm not home yet that night. And this VC calls me back and says, "You know, I just, I just can't do it. It's just too early. Uh, I like the product, I love your idea, but we just—it's just you're just too early for who we are." So I had to literally call everyone back at that dinner that night and tell them, "Hey, we still want you to invest, but the VC's out." And they're like, "Well, if he's out, then you know we're out." So I had a million bucks on the table that night, or seven fifty, whatever, lost out of the gate just because we were too early, even though we had a prototype of like a working demoable solution, um, but we didn't have enough contracts and revenue for further LPs. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are at that early stage that are thinking, do I need to go pitch to these VCs? Like, do you think it was still helpful to build those relationships with some of the VCs early on? Should they still go have those conversations or should they focus their attention on friends, family, and maybe people in the industry who, who aren't professional investors, but maybe will write that $25,000 check just yeah. to get them started because they really understand the product and who they are as a person. Yeah, I'm not going to say it was a waste of my time doing all that because I, I've built some good relationships. I've learned a ton. But I will say if I had spent half the time talking to half the people I spoke to and used a quarter of that time to go spend time with the people I should have been speaking to, I would have been further along faster. So break it down for some entrepreneurs who are at that stage. What, what do you think is the appropriate thing? Maybe like if you were going to spend, uh, let's say, a percentage of time, let's say 100 hours or whatever, um, a month on fundraising, should, should 60 of those hours be spent on more, like less of the, the professional investors and more of some of those angel type players? What, what would you think would be an optimal breakdown in terms of relationship building and fundraising, I guess, is a good way to frame it? Yeah, a lot of it depends on kind of what you're selling or building and also you as a person. Like I have a sales background, so I enjoy the networking piece of it. Um, what I didn't realize was their thesis, like how they manage. How, what, these people were paid to go out and meet people like me early on to find out what's in the market, who's doing what, consider if these guys get to a 3 or $4 million run rate uh, ARR, that's what we want to be engaged with them. But if 
if they don't meet with me beforehand, they're not going to know I exist. I mean, I have people flying from New York, from Chicago, from Cleveland, trying to just grab lunch or dinner to learn more about us and, and where we are. So it's, it was a great educational experience for me. However, running a business at that stage of the company, if I could tell myself back then to do something over, I would have spent almost all of my time on angel money, investors and friends and family, because there's a lot of pros and cons to angel investors, but you know, most of them, because they weren't professional angel investors, they're just people with money or that like the idea, they refer friends and family to you. So I've raised a couple million dollars just off referrals alone at an early stage of our life cycle. And, and there, it's typically a 30-minute call once in a while. Um, and they're out of state. They don't require a lot of... And they're not bothering you to run your business. I mean, these people just want you to be successful. And they don't know enough to start asking a bunch of questions about run rate and contracts and pipelines and Salesforce and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the other ones that do have enough experience, they want to help you because they want their investment to go far. So they're like, okay, who do you want to know? What door can open for you? I got a guy that's investing, but you don't want his money because he's a PIA. You want, you want somebody else. So things like that to think about early on as an investor. If, if I'm telling my old self what to do, focus on the people that are going to be smart money for you at that point in your career. And at the time you were doing the fundraising, uh, you were, I'm assuming, also about trying to get customers and, and building the company too. What was, were you spending more of your time on that side or were you, were, was your focus fundraise like we need the money to build the business? You asked me about the 100 hours thing. I mean, I, I would say, unfortunately, I probably put 99 hours a month. If, if we use that 100 hours a month example, I probably put 95, 99 hours a month into fundraising. I mean, that is pretty much all I did, which which is unfortunate because it was time I, I wasn't putting into the company. I mean, I was doing it nights and weekends and all day and all, whenever I could, but you're Probably still, 100 hours a week. I don't know. Oh, no, no, minimum. I mean, no question whatsoever. I mean, no question 100 hours a week easily. But yeah, I'm trying to, I was trying to find, you know, you're trying to start getting a, a, a payroll system, an accounting system. You're trying to outsource, trying to look at benefits for new hires to come on because they need benefits. You're trying to get an office space. You're trying to figure out, you know, we live in healthcare, so you got HIPAA requirements and you start looking at security. You look at hiring the right colleagues, people you trust because you want to put something on their plate and not worry about it. You're looking at, um, at raising money for salaries. You're looking at options right i mean equity is what people want in a small company and you don't have a lot of cash so you want to get people to pay um get paid in equity and then they come on board they want this thing to work better and now you're raising more money you're getting partners you're building a product now you need more money so literally up, up until two months ago for the last four years i've done nothing but raise money and i'm not if, if earlier on if i could have raised five million out of the gate i we probably would have had an exit by now I mean, just because it's just taken us every penny you raise is operational. It's you keep you're staying alive. You're, you know, it's operational capital. So our C money rolled directly into our convertible note A, which we raised about two million on that, which rolled directly into our convertible note B, which we raised uh, just like one point eight or something on that. And when that money was running out, we literally opened up. Uh, we we tried getting a, a, a lead, but. We just didn't have time and couldn't get the right one. So we we went and looked traditional terms for, you know, a series A. It's either investor heavy, entrepreneur heavy, or down the road. We want to be as ethical as possible, pick down the road terms and just went went roll with it. And fortunately for us, almost all of our current investors on the A and B note 
basically opened it up for us. And once we hit a million dollars, it was a $3 million round originally. Once we hit 1 million on that round, all of our convertible notes converted into equity. That was our trigger point. Um, but we realized pretty soon, like, hey, we got to extend this to 5 million to do what we got to do. Uh, got board approval, extended it to 5 million. And I'm still doing it all. You know, we collectively, our colleagues, we're all people, angels, everyone just raising money. We're still doing fifty, hundred thousand dollars checks on our Series A until the very end. Um, literally, last month, which is about two or three months ago, we closed it down. We had a, a healthcare system invest two million. It was actually one point eight seven million, um, and then we had a group in town here, Jumpstart Capital, invested. It's a one point nine, I believe, to be exact. I had still had to get. I had to close out my five million dollars because those were board approved to be strategic money uh, above and beyond that five. So I had to literally send a check. Somebody wrote me a twenty-five thousand dollar check back. I had to send it back and say, "Can you write this for twenty-three thousand four hundred eighty-two dollars?" So I hit my exact five million dollar number on the Series A, um, and then I had another. I had to actually write and send an entire fifty thousand dollar check back that I couldn't take. It's, I was working on a guy for two years. He finally wrote me a check in the mail. Never even told me he was sending it. I just got it, and it was. I just had to send it back. Uh, so that's uh, th those capital raises, the convertible note A, convertible note B, and the Series A. Those happened over a three to four year period. Right? Yeah. So what was the? Let's go back to the first money that came in. What mm -hmm. did you use that money for? Uh, that was the friends and family, maybe yep. a little over a couple, a couple hundred thousand. Hundred eighty-seven. Hundred eighty-seven thousand. So, what did that money go towards? And were you thinking like, here is the milestones we need need to hit to get to the raise to raise the next round? Or again, were you thinking, okay, now we've got the money. Here's how we need to grow the business. And then the fundraising is um, like, at what point was there an actual fundraising? Plan, I, um, I don't think we thought anything with that money. We really said, okay, we got some money. We we knew a developer. Um, we said, hey, can you start building a prototype? So Brian, in between shifts would meet this developer at his urgent care and start building basically a wireframe of what we had to put together. Um, I got uh, my chief marketing officer I used to work with who came on board, Deb Miller. I got my old CTO from a company that I had, he had hired me before. Um, he was doing some consulting. He made some money on an exit. I got those two together and said, hey, what do we, how should we, what do we do here? Like, I've got this idea. I, I mentioned earlier, I'm not an entrepreneur. I, I think there's different stages of, of leaders or entrepreneurs. Like I think there's people that are idea guys, like Brian, my partner. And I think there are guys that can take an idea to market and do something with it, which is where I think I fit. And then there's people that can take, I don't know, a 10 or $15 million company and then go blow it up. You know, that's just, and then there's obviously the big CEOs of the world. I think it's important to know where you fit because you can be more successful that way and, and have less of an ego and knowing you're confident that that's just not my skill set. There's people for that job. And I knew that early on about myself that I had to get some people to come help me figure this out. I knew I could sell it and grow it and raise money, but I didn't know how to do that. I just knew I knew people. So I went out and used that money to start paying some consulting hours for a few people here and there, developer doing some stuff, doing some marketing, changing the, you know, we were taught early on to be the company uh, we want to be, not the company we are today. So we had to change the vision and the perception of who we are as a company. And then also look at an, an architect design of how we can scale a business, given what we want to accomplish within the healthcare uh, constraints we have in IT uh, within a hospital system. So the first money went to pretty much that. And as you can imagine, that lasted like a day. So then we just went out and I started researching what, what do you, how do people raise money? Um, Nucura, because it was our first check, they only did convertible notes. 
and we kind of looked at the best terms that was good for us and for them. And we just went with the convertible note. We set the terms with them and took it to market. Um, and then the convertible, be, and so that basically built, uh, we hired two full-time developers with that. Uh, we got temporary office space with that. Started paying some other people we were working with more consulting hours to do more work for us. I was still working on the job. Brian was still working his other job. And then that led naturally into our, our convertible B, which we just changed the terms a little bit around you know the interest and the discount and raised another almost $2 million on that one, which then got more temporary office space, got more people. And it was right around the time when I quit my job and Brian quit his job. And that's when we started really hammering down the performa, the business model. We had a, we have a web platform, which we still have today. And we were going hell-bent on the advertising model, which we realized after a while wasn't the smartest decision, but it got us a lot of credibility in the market. And then we started really focusing on how do we take this and embed it into the hospital medical record? Like that's where the future of evidence care is going to be. And that's where we started like, all right, we're going to do this. We need to open up a series A, convert all this debt off of our books, the notes, get the, get everyone equity in the company, clean slate. Um, through that conversion, we converted to a C corporation from an LLC, which is kind of where we, where we are today. So the first time you pitched Nucura, you didn't have the prototype. You were, you were they sent you away and said you were too early. Um, the second time you came back with a prototype, did you have users? How far along was the business, or was it just here's a prototype? We're still looking for people who want to use the product. Yeah, that's right. The first time, basically, it was a good idea, and they said no. Um, not they didn't like the idea; they just wanted to see that we could actually build it and somebody would actually use it. Um, which, which is a good lesson learned across the board. I mean, people want to take an idea because they get so excited to market. And problem with doing that, you burn, burn a lot of bridges because people will meet with you once. Oftentimes, they won't meet with you twice. So you really have to know exactly who you're walking into and have everything with you the first time. But yeah, the second time, we had a, a, an early version of a prototype. Uh, we had a web-based application. We had a couple of, probably a thousand or two users on the platform itself. Weren't using it heavily. It was a free version of a web app. Um, but we could show something tangible that that they can invest in. You know, we had a we had a very early medical society that loved the business model, and they signed a letter of intent to partner with us once we built this out. So we finally came back to the table with uh, you know a potential partner, a prototype, and some users. Um, it wasn't really revenue generating users, but it was showing that somebody would actually use what we would build if we could get the money to build it. So Nucura made a commitment for some funds. Their check just uh, springboard for you to go to other people and say, look, Nucura is invested. They understand healthcare because that's their focus. They understand our product because their their backgrounds are in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't do the full two million. Is that correct? No, that's correct. Yeah, they've they've done three. They've so they've invested three times. They have a little over a million dollars in us in total over multiple over all three rounds. Um, but yeah, no, they've been they've been a fantastic partner for us. I'm not sure we'd be where we are today without them. I mean, they they came on and they believe in you know two kids or two guys trying to figure this out with an idea and now a viable idea. And they're very clinical focused, very hospital operational focused. They knew the challenges we we're trying to solve were there. They knew our market opportunity was there. They just wanted to see that the product could be there. We could build the product. So when we came in and we had that first version of the product, it was, it was a no-brainer for them. I mean, we've, we've got some very well-known entrepreneurs slash CEOs in Nashville that are investors. Um, and, we're, and, and almost all of them have invested three to four times in us as a company. 
So getting some of those early customers lined up, uh, was were there major customers or was it like these early adopters are, are supposed to be the, the heaviest users? Is that kind of what you had built and were able to take Nunyakura and say, like, look at look at these clients that we have. They're not just random people. These are you know major businesses or well-known people in the community. First, The first money we got from Nunyakura was really around they believed in the vision, the market. They saw the early prototype. That we and you know they, they knew this is a market challenge, right? There's a big, big gap in healthcare, um, so that's an early money from them. When the real money started, and assuming money came from them, was around as a business. We decided we need to go out and get a, a major strategic partner. And in our world, strategic could be many things, but it really means a, a large healthcare system to believe in us. And these innovation uh, groups are popping up left and right. Every major healthcare system in the country. And for us, it was MedStar Health out of uh, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. They're $6 billion hospital system. They're bigger than Johns Hopkins and Maryland combined, University of Maryland combined. And their innovations group believed in us out of the gate. They're having a lot of the problems in the space that we're trying to solve. So they end up making a big investment in us, uh, also became a customer of ours, and also became a development customer. So they took this, this web app that we built and basically paid us to build it inside of their electronic medical record at their hospital system. In addition to paying us to develop these suite of urgent care protocols, not just so they can use them within their urgent cares, which they brand prompt care, but also that we can now take on the evidence care platform to the rest of the world and sell with the revenue share model. So they're very innovative, very strategic. What that also did, aside from giving us a customer and giving us revenue and giving us a logo, and we can use their name for all marketing. They do uh, panel discussions with us. We can do conferences together. But they gave us credibility in the market. So now, not just from an investor, angel, whatever you want to call it, pers- perspective, but now I have this, these people making phone calls on my behalf saying, hey, you should talk to these guys. they got something here you might be interested in. And they've flown with us to major healthcare systems across the country multiple times. They've flown with us to meet with these electronic health record companies in their corporate office to talk about a bigger partnership with us. So it was really, really, really important for our, our growth about two years ago to get this, this partnership. And then once we got that, there's a big name here in town that we've partnered with. It's it's one of those where, oh, they're doing business with you? Okay, I'll come out and I can probably say the name or not, but I can't, so I probably won't. But you know, it's a, it's about credibility for where we were as a company, and we finally got to the point where we had some names behind us, and those names were not just partnering with us, but they were giving us cash and using us as a customer. And I think that was a springboard for us when we started really taking off and be able to close out that Series A and, and get that money. So that helped you with maybe some of that later institutional or those big institutional rounds that came in. Um, but you had raised $4 million, it sounds like, before you brought in your first major institutional investor for that Series A. Uh, now, Nucura, I would classify maybe as institutional, like an organized source of capital. Um, but they wrote uh, a part of the check, and then you raised money for that first convertible note and the second convertible note. Were those all individuals? Is that where the numbers started getting up into close to the, the triple digits in terms of investors? Because you raised $4 million before you got... A really a big check from a Series A investor. No, I actually raised, don't quote me, I have to pull it up, but close to six or seven million before we did that because we did just, you know, just shy of 200,000 on that seed. We did it 
just call it a two million convertible A, two million convertible B. And then of that series A, the majority of that was all angels as well. Um, the, the, the two institutional investors we had, the large healthcare system that came in at the very end and Jumpstart here in town, um, that was in addition to our series A. In the series A, we did all, all angels. We had a couple angels that went in for half a million here and there, which helped a ton. Yeah, it was it was all the hard way. All angels, mostly. So what was that process like? Were you pitching hundreds of people or was it like you you pitched 110 people and 100 wrote checks just because the relationships were so good with the connections that we're building? And, and what was that process like? And bringing in that money and, and meeting with all these types of investors and bringing in what could have been considered inexperienced investors. The highest level of the pain in the ass at the... Uh, from a business perspective, probably one of the best things I've done to help our business grow because now I know everything upside down, inside out about raising capital the hard way. At least, at least our stage of capital. I mean, I don't. I'm not saying I know how to raise private equity money, or you know, that's, that's a whole other conversation that I'm hopefully going to embark on down the road. But right now, it was it was a good learning experience because I, I I hate I hate the thought of having to run a business and raise capital and being taken advantage of because I don't know any better. So it was really good for me to go go about it the hard way. And just like anything in life, when you go through something the hard way, you know, look looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's it's the only way I would have done it. Um, but if I could have done easier up front, I absolutely would have. But no, I probably let's just call it we raised a hundred from a hundred angels, I probably spoke with five hundred people. I mean easy. Mm-hmm. Everyone no one's everyone's afraid to say no, except for the sophisticated ones or they'll flat out tell you, but that's rare. They just, somebody wants you to meet somebody else or talk to somebody else or talk to their advisor or talk to their financial folks. And, you know, we're having conversations with everyone, their mother, trying to make people want to invest in their IRAs or talking to these, how, to, how can they do that? How you transfer the money? But yeah, it was, it was lengthy and difficult. For entrepreneurs who are told to avoid the dirty cap table, to avoid raising from 100 people and all the, re- all the things that can go wrong and, hire, and raising money from inexperienced investors, what what do you say to that? Was that did was that ever a problem for you? I mean, you raised money from Jumpstart. You raised money from an institutional investor. Did they come in, or, or any other institutional investors you might have pitched, come in and say, "We're not doing this because you got a hundred people on your cap table"? Was that ever really a problem for you? No, I can say fortunately for us, it wasn't. Um, we we were very fortunate to have great investors. You know, along the way, maybe one or two got a little annoying if you will but they have the right to they give us money so I don't we don't take it personal it's just they give us cash and we expect them to have questions and if we don't have the answers then we need we should get the answers but yeah I mean no one wants a long cap table the biggest pain in the butt for an LLC with a long cap table is tax season because you have to do a K1 for everybody and that is a nightmare but we were very good at proactive we, we kept our we still too keep our uh, investors current we sound out quarterly investor emails with Anything about a partnership, a new hire, a success, our financials, perform anything they need to be aware of, contracts we've signed, we let them know. So we, you know, I've been in sales for a long time. You always want to beat people to the punch and answer the question before they ask it. Um, we did a pretty good job of staying out in front of them. And if we missed a month or two, we would the questions would start rolling in. We'd see it, but they were nothing bad. And large cap tables did come up in a couple of conversations because big investors don't want to deal with a bunch of inexperienced investors because it's just annoying for them. 
I mean, next next round we do. I mean, people talk about cleaning up that cap table and of sorts, which we're not against at all, but we're very cognizant of the fact that we wouldn't be where we are today without without every one of those investors. So fortunately for us, it wasn't that bad at all. Uh, we were very lucky, but you know, the downsides are you've you got a lot of investors, you got a lot of K1s, you got a lot of questions over the years. When you're trying, it becomes a distraction from running your business. But the good investors, the, the inexperienced ones just leave you alone. They're like, hey, that's 50 grand. And if I lose it, I lose it. I'm not going to, you know, just say forget about it. The investors who ask the questions are really around, you know, what's going on? What can I do to help? Why haven't you done this yet? I know a guy, you should talk to this guy or that girl and do that kind of thing. But, uh, and the real, real good ones either open a door for you or they leave you alone because they know you're trying to run that business and, and any distraction you have is not growing the business. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are in environments similar to Nashville where institutional investors aren't really going to take a look at, at your business until you get much further along? What advice do you have for those entrepreneurs that may have to go out and pitch to 500 individuals and, and maybe have 100 investors? What, what advice can you give them about that process? I mean, the best advice I can give whether it's an investor or a VC, an angel or a VC is really do as much diligence as you can up front. Find out, you know, are they experienced investors? What's their thesis? Even if it's a person, like, do they even know anything at all about healthcare? I've spent so many hours pitching to people that think they know everything about healthcare. And you get into a conversation, they know literally nothing about what you do. And then I'll write a check. I've got one gentleman who started a company. He's a little bit older. He's done very well. His son-in-law invested 50 grand and he referred me to meet him. We met for coffee and the guy, he is in engineering and has invested a half million dollars in us. And he still today probably has no idea what we do, but he's just a great guy. He's a smart businessman. He looked at the business model and he looked at the leaders of the organization and um, he trusted people and we stay in touch and I, I meet him for a drink every once in a while. And But you, you know, I, I spent, I wasted so many hours by not, not researching or having a conversation or you know, in a sales world, you want to pre-qualify an opportunity. Like I didn't qualify any of these people. You're just like, oh, so many things are going to invest. Let's go have coffee. Let's have lunch. Let's have dinner. I'll jump on a flight. And the same thing goes for healthcare systems. Like we've flown all over the country to meet with people just because they want to see what's out there. It benefits them more than it does you. Um, so really, 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 really. And if you can try to do a group thing, like we've, we did a couple um, investor dinners, if you will, or investor lunches. And, and that that could save you weeks of work because you get the same people you're going to get anyway in one room together. And, and if you really get the right people in that room, they play off each other and you can raise a half a million in, in two hours instead of raising a hundred million in, in two months. Um, so it really was beneficial to do it that way. Sometimes it's just not possible though. You know I mean? At the end of the day, that the hardest thing about being an investor is the grunt work. And I would say what is going to make people successful, at least the route that we go through and I see a lot of entrepreneurs go through or startups is really having the, um, that's the right word I'm looking for, having the ability to <clears throat> brush it off, wake up the next morning and keep going because you're gonna get hit every single day. Every single day you're gonna, it's like a golf shot, right? You're, you crack that baby out the tee and then the rest of your game sucks. But it's that one shot that keeps you going. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's the life of it. You know, it's who has, the gut capability to go to bed pissed off and sad and upset and wake up the next day crazy excited to get back after it again. I mean, that's, if you don't have that, you're just going to waste your time. Yeah. So what about the relationships with some of the institutional investors? Uh, was, was Jumpstart the only institutional pitch 
company that you pitched for this round, or were you talking to some of those uh, those companies that maybe were flying in town from earlier rounds, or are those maybe round, the next phase for, for Evidence Care to go start pitching those? Yeah, a little both. I think a lot of them are still probably up for the next phase, uh, you know, next round, if we do another one next year. But yeah, I talked to all of them. I went to J.P. Morgan for the first time last January. I literally flew back from South Africa Saturday, and I got the first flight out Sunday to J.P. Morgan just because I knew we had to be there. And it was a great experience. I met some people, some VCs in town that have known me, helped me out with some introductions. I met people, pitching everyone. I mean, at that point, I'm like, now I've got a product. I've got partners. i got a little bit of revenue. i got a couple signed contracts. Um, I've got a team. We've got a great sponsorship in this medical society world, emergency medicine, that has our back. We're doing a bunch of other cool stuff. I'm like, all right, this this is where, I'm, where we should be. But really what the reason I got Jumpstart to the table was the founders are innovative. They're in healthcare. They've started companies before. Um, and I gave an update to, to Nakira because I, they asked from their current portfolio companies, give an update. I did. And one of the new board members in Jumpstart Capital was there and he was a current investor through their, through their, uh, special entity. And he asked us to meet with the founder of Jumpstart Capital and we did. And the guy got it right out of the gate. I mean, literally from, from first presentation to cash in a bank was probably, I don't know, two months. I mean, it was very quick for, for, for $2 million round for somebody who never met us before. But yeah, we're still pitching everyone and their mother because in our mind, I have a Series A open. A lot of, quote, VCs are in that Series A stage. I was raising th- three, then $5 million in that round. So now I'm in the wheelhouse of where it's worth them their time because they don't want to invest 500, they want to do 5 million. It's easier to get 5 million than 500, assuming you have the boxes checked. And I had no option but to keep the conversation going. I mean, I kept a running tab. I ruled out certain people that I knew was just a complete waste of time. But there are some good ones out there that really want you to be successful. They want to help you. They helped us with cap tables. They helped us with introductions. I've raised money from certain angels because VCs gave me a reference. Just because we don't fit in their wheelhouse doesn't mean they won't. They didn't like the business model, wouldn't do it if they could. So, yeah, I stay in touch with all of them. I mean, one thing you learn the hard way is never, ever burn a bridge. Yeah. Especially in this town. <laughs> yeah, especially in a small town, which is where I think most of the entrepreneurs listening to this are probably in those types yeah. of communities. So, what's next for Evidence Care? Um, you closed this round, uh, you said a couple weeks ago. Is that right? So, what, what's next? Are you already thinking about the next round? Are you already reaching out to larger institutional investors and, and thinking about, I guess, what would be maybe a Series B? Yeah, we're, um, I was hoping I never have to raise money again, but that's never going to happen. Life of an entrepreneur, you, I think you're always constantly raising money, whether you actively have a round open or not. Um, and just by nature of who I am as a person and in the role I assumed within the organization, uh, I'm always, I feel responsible for that piece of the business. So my mind is already around our next, our next round. Um, it can come in a couple of different forms. We, we may, may raise money to clean up the cap table, we may raise money to stay alive at the end of you know 2020, early 2021. Uh, we have a couple large healthcare systems that are interested in doing some partnerships with us and up in other um, specialties, if you will, for other content areas. They're interested in doing investment, maybe a couple of syndicates together, uh, which we would use that money probably clean up our tap, cap table, maybe some operating capital. You know, in the in the holy grail world. Wouldn't have to raise any more money because we don't want to get diluted. Um, but I'm a realist. I mean, either we're going to have to raise money because we need it or we're going to raise money because we're crushing it and we really want to blow this thing out of the water. And if we're going to go enterprise scale, you need cash to do that. 
Um, so within the next 12 to 18 months, we'll do another round of some sort for sure. So from somebody who's raised 11 or $12 million total in a town that is not necessarily known for having a lot of early stage capital, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs in closing? What are your final maybe words of wisdom that you can pass along to the entrepreneurs uh, similar or in an environment similar to yours? Yeah, that's a really challenging question because I, you know, we never wanted to raise a penny outside of Nashville. I mean, we're in the healthcare mecca. If you know anything about healthcare, where Nashville is the mecca uh, for a lot of reasons, but. You know, I think things have evolved in Nashville in the last four years. I mean, I think there are some good organizations that have changed. People are doing earlier investing. I personally haven't seen a lot of it yet, but I, I read a lot and I see people are trying to do that. A couple of more angel groups have popped up, but, you know, for us, you know, our chief marketing officer always says shoot with the ducks are flying. And, you know, we didn't know that we, we shot, we just buckshot it everywhere we went. We're like, just who, who has money? Write me a check. I don't care who it is, where you are, I'm going to go. Planes, trains, automobiles, I'm going to raise capital. I mean, you know, I think the only advice you could really do, it's its hard to give advice to an entrepreneur with, with an idea because people don't invest in ideas. I mean, rarely anymore, right? Unicorns are out there. Everyone's seen them. Um, I, I've listened to every, how I built this podcast you can think of. And it's its motivating because you people go through the challenges like I do every single day and, and, and my colleagues do every day. But, you know, you just got to take, you got to take money where you can get it. And unfortunately... Um, if you can do angel investing, I mean, the groups, angel investor groups, if you get one to invest, that changes the game because now they open up their doors and a lot of them are now syndicating across the country. We went through an accelerator program at Texas Medical Center down in Houston, and they're all syndicating across the country. And he's and everyone and their mother right now is trying to jump into healthcare. I mean, and people will invest anything just to get their foot in the door in healthcare right now. So it, it's hard. I mean, it, it, the biggest advice I can give is don't quit because it's going to happen. The money's going to be there. Um, you just got to, there, there's been, say this right now. I mean, I, I woke up, our CFO on, um, what are we in right now, in August? Closed the round down a couple months ago. I think July, we closed it. May 2nd, our CFO called Brian on that morning and said, we're not going to make payroll on May 17th. You know, I had 20 some people employed. We have an office, we have clients, we got partners. And that's probably happened 10 times in the last four years. You know, it's stressful to run a business. Knowing you have to make decisions, they're going to drive the business forward. And those decisions cost money. But you also have to know that you don't have oftentimes a runway to do what you got to do. And you, But you have to have the confidence and belief that what you are doing is the right thing. And it's going to make a difference. And you're going to raise that money. And you're going to wake up the next day and you're going to mysteriously find $4 million somehow or $500,000 to make payroll and you figure the rest out. I mean, it's, um, you just have to be crazy confident in what you're doing and believe in, in the mission and your partners are going to get it done. I see a lot of quotes from VCs that and, and people giving advice about fundraising. Take money from people who understand your business, who, <laughs> who know what you're, you know you and know your business. It can be helpful. But I'm assuming that when you were when you were trying to rush to make, find a check to make payroll, you were just going to take a check wherever you could get it, with certain exceptions, I'm sure. You wouldn't just take any check, but uh, is that good advice? I mean, should entrepreneurs be thinking, well, I only need to take checks from people who understand my business? Or do you take the check? When, when it's life or death for your business and making payroll, you got to take that check. 
if you have the luxury of only taking a check from people that you want to take a check from, by all means do that. But half the people giving that advice, and this is where I'm going to veer off track for a second, half the people giving that advice have never started a company before. If you talk to half these young, you know, there's a lot of great venture capital companies out there, but if you look at the people that are screening the deals and the first call opportunity you have to talk to them about your business model, half of them either just graduated college, have been in this role for five years, never had a job before, and never worried about payroll, never raised a penny. And they're the ones on the panel lists that are telling these entrepreneurs to only take smart money. And of course, what idiot in the world would not want to take smart money? Everyone wants smart money. But when you are trying to raise a, a, a round of capital and you've got mouths to feed and people paying their mortgages and they've got kids at home and you've got a business to run and you've made commitments, you've signed contracts to customers and partners, you take the damn check, whether you like it or not. I mean, I've taken $2,000 checks, I've taken $500,000 checks and $2 million checks. You do what you got to do to stay, stay, stay alive. So my advice there is if, if you have the option of taking smart money, don't be an idiot and not take it, but you do what you got to do. I mean, to, to raise capital and, you know, we're, we were in a position over the years. Um, I just, you, know, you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. Preach it to the choir here. Yeah. So thank you again to Jim Jamison for coming in. Thank you for your time today. Uh, it sounds like maybe a key takeaway from the, the podcast today is start a healthcare company, a great industry to start a company and move it to Nashville. That's right. And we've got plenty of people who are going to write you a check. We've got, <laughs> you know, hundreds of people who will take a meeting and maybe a hundred or so who will write you a check. Great tagline. <laughs> well, <laughs> great tagline for Nashville. Right. Um, well, thank you so much again for coming in. A great story, um, great takeaways here from an entrepreneur who's, who raised money from a, a, a large number of investors and was still able to pull in institutional capital and keep his business uh, growing. And uh, we wish you all the success. Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for listening to the latest episode of Startups in the Studio. If you'd like to dig in deeper into this episode or other episodes, you can visit our website, startupsinthestudio.com, to find show notes and links we found to be relevant based on these interviews. Of course, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Give us a high rating and a positive review wherever you listen to your podcast. And please feel free to share startups in the studio with anyone you think would enjoy our conversations. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what we can do better, give us some topic or interview ideas, or just send us a note and say hello. You can reach me at phil, P-H-I-L, at startupsinthestudio.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care and go out there and raise some money.